I want you to imagine with me a minute that uh, you are, <clears throat> let's say, in a forest, desert, if you prefer, wherever. Just imagine that uh, you're in the Amazon or in the Sahara. And you're walking along, and all of a sudden you find a ball. Let's say a baseball. There's nothing else around you except nature, and there's a baseball. Are you going to think to yourself, that ball had to magically appear here in this forest? Or are you going to think, the earth the earth birthed that baseball right there. Or will you think, somebody's been here before me and they left that baseball there. Suppose you keep walking and you find a ball as big as a car. Again, are you going to think, well, the, the earth must have just somehow, magically, created this big ball right here in the middle of nowhere? Or are you going to think, no, somebody had to put that ball right there. Now imagine with me a ball as big as the earth. Are you going to think that this great planet just somehow mystically, magically appeared or are you going to believe that, no, somebody put that there? The theory of evolution is just that. It's theory. Although taught today and accepted in some cases as science itself. But the greatest problem with the theory of natural law or evolution is that it completely eliminates the possibility of a creator. Evolutionary theory works something like this. If I were to take off my watch and I had the tools and the know-how to take this watch apart, remove every piece from this watch, every part, every piece, and I put it in a large pan, shook it up, and then threw it up in the air as far as I could, the theory of evolution says that this watch is going to come down complete exactly as it is ticking. They would rather believe that than the fact that there was a watchmaker that made this watch. In simplest terms, <clears throat> I'll put it back on so I'll keep time, okay? <laughs> In simplest terms, the substance of natural law or evolutionary theory is the belief that nobody plus nothing equals everything. In contrast, creation says that wherever there's a thing, 
there must have been a thought behind this thing. And if there were a thought behind this thing, there had to be a thinker who had the thought about this thing. Dr. Robert Jastro, the founder of NASA's Institute for Space Studies, made this comment. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, his story will end like a bad dream. For he has scaled the mountains of ignorance, he is about to conquer the highest peak, and he pulls himself over the final rock. And there he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Biblical truth, creation. Now the primary reason I talk at all about the theory of evolution versus creation is not because I, I want us to study the uh, origins of the universe, but what I do want you to realize is that these two different mindsets will give rise to completely different understandings of the world. What we believe at the core is going to govern our assumptions about what we see and experience in this world. And one of the primary issues that separate biblical believers from those who are not is the doctrine of man. What we as biblical believers believe and understand about the nature of man versus those who disavow Creator, their understanding of the nature of man. You get the evolutionary theory in the term evolve. Evolution teaches that man is continually evolving, that we are ascending, that we started down here and we're ascending up there. The problem with that is that the Bible teaches something very differently. I want to turn your attention this morning to the sixth day of creation. The creation of man. Please follow <clears throat> as I read. And I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture this morning so that we can have a clear understanding about what God says about his ultimate creation, the creation of mankind. Genesis 1 23, I'm sorry, um, 26 through 31. And I'm reading from the, the New uh, Living Translation. 
Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all fruit trees for your food. And I've given you every green plant for food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. That is what happened. God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed and morning came marking the sixth day. So what we see in God's creation of his special creature Mankind are these things. First, that God created man unique from all other creation. He created him in his own image, verses 27, uh, 26 to 27a. He also created mankind distinctly and exclusively male and female, verse 27b. He created mankind complementary and intimately when he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, 28a. And then he created mankind superior. He told us to reign over the earth, to govern it. This is 28 and 29. But then came the fall. You have mankind being created in this superior image in the image of God like none other creation but then mankind fell I know you know the story but I want to read it uh, anyway so follow as I read the third chapter of Genesis and just don't Allow, please don't allow your familiarity with this story to keep you from hearing God speak to you this morning. Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say to you not to eat, from, uh, not to eat the fruit from any of the trees of the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her, and so she took some of the fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. 
When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called out to man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked, Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And the man said, since you listened, and to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you eat of its grains by the sweat of your brow, you will have to, you will, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made? For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing for, from animal skins for Adam and, and his wife. And then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing good and evil. What if they reach out and take the fruit of the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. He sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed a mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So mankind fell. And upon mankind, a curse came. Now, what is this curse? What did this curse do to Adam and Eve? Theologically, it's called, the term is total depravity. The best definition I've ever heard of total depravity is this. This doctrine has suffered from many misconceptions. For the average person would define total depravity by saying it means that mankind is as bad as he can be. However, if we adopt that as an acceptable definition, immediately our theology is brought into question because we know people who are not as bad as they can be. We know people who are good, kind, generous, Moral, who contribute in the home and to the community. Rather, the doctrine of total depravity says that mankind is as bad off as he can be. Cursed with a curse, 
the curse of the sin nature. We see this sin nature taking root in the next generation. Follow me in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve. She became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I produced a man. Later she gave birth to, her bro- to his brother na- and named him Abel. When, Abel or when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd and Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. The the, uh, Hebrew of the dejected means he just lowered his face. He just knew that God had taken his hand off. Verse 6, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain, why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's keeper? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground Now you are cursed and banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you no matter how hard you work. From now on you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, No, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Again, we see this curse of man taking root in the young man Cain. We find Cain, first of all, being selfish. Selfish in the fact that Abel gave his best gift and Cain gave some. We find him rejected by God. His gift, the Lord said, he would not receive. Then we see Cain in anger and dejection. His face fell and it resulted in violence. 
deadly violence. When Cain killed his brother. The next time that Cain meets with the Lord, he's sarcastic and disrespectful. Am I my brother's keeper? Why do you ask me where my brother is? I don't know. I don't follow him around. He's not my responsibility. God then judges him with a particular curse. And Cain belly aches. The curse is too great. So what went wrong with Cain? What happened to this firstborn of Adam and Eve? I mean, if Cain got the curse of man, the sin nature, did Abel not get it? What was the difference? You see, whereas Adam and Eve were born of God, innocent, Cain, Abel, Seth, and all of the other children of Adam and Eve were born into depravity. The thing is, though, it's not just Cain, Abel, and Seth and their siblings who got the curse, sin nature, that propensity, that, that pull of rebellion. Romans 5. <clears throat> verses 12 through 17 says this. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death so that death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not a, a, yet a law to break. Still everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. But Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, it brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and His gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God even though we're guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death 
to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who will receive it, live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. So, if Adam sinned, and through his sin, we have inherited this curse of mankind. We are born into sin from our father, a sinner. And we are all born with this total depravity. In contrast, through then Jesus Christ, we can have redemption and salvation. But again, why is it that Cain did what he did and Abel didn't? Why is it that we're seeing today in our culture such rabid violence and hatred? Why are we seeing such a distinct difference in the culture that, that we're exposed to in this country today versus who we used to be? Versus biblical standards of belief. This V that I showed last, last week just keeps getting wider and wider as biblical belief stays strong and the curse of mankind just keeps getting further and further into depravity. Why do some people act the way they do in kindness and goodness and others respond in violence and hatred? Well, the answer is found in the book of Genesis, actually in one passage we've already read. In Genesis 4, 6 through 7, where God speaks to Cain about his offering, and God says, Cain, why are you so angry? What's your point? Why do you look so de dejected? Don't you know you will be accepted if you do what is right? But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. It's not about one person being more cursed than the other. It's not about one individual being worse off than the other. It's about choice. It's about who and what we allow to control us. God said again to Cain, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse, sin is waiting at your door. But you must subdue it and become its master. So it's an issue of what we allow to control us. 
whether we turn to the cursed self or the cure of the Savior. It's where we go when we have decisions to make. The Creator or evolutionary theory that man just keeps spiraling upward and onward. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, he will also reap. A couple of quick points. Practical points about where we are as a culture in trying to embrace God and His biblical truths and seeing this great contrast and having to deal with our culture today. Point one is this. Please understand we are just as bad off as they are. We live in depravity as well. Our spirits are corrupt. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We can't know them. And given the right circumstances, we may be doing the same thing. We live with a corrupt nature. In one respect, we should regard those who think differently with empathy and understanding. But from another perspective, God has used His righteous indignation in His people. He used it in the Lord Jesus at the temple. When do we express righteous indignation versus empathy and understanding? Well, that's something that the Spirit of God has to work out in your life and mine. Let me close with this. Suppose I took you out to a football field, a football stadium, and I pointed you, we stood at one goal line, and I pointed you to the other goal line, And I said, your task is to start here at this goal line and walk as straight as you can until you cross the goal line at the other end of the field. You think, I've walked before. It's no big deal. I can do this. But then I come up behind you and I put a blindfold on you. And I say, now walk a straight line to the other end of the field. And as you start, you realize that there are people lining the fields. And they're yelling out directions for you. You're going left. You need to go right. No, that's too far. Come back. Come back. Go come over this way a little further. And so you walking blindfold, blindfolded, with all these people screaming these, this information at you, telling you what you should do and where you should go. Well, after a few minutes, you're just going to stop. You're not going to know what to do. But then if I come up from behind you 
and remove your blindfold, you'll be able to see exactly where you are and precisely where you need to go. That's us. That's you and me. As we started our life, we were blindfolded. We had sin nature. We were lost. And we were blind to the spiritual things of God. But there came a point in time in your life when God took the blindfold off in redemption. And suddenly you could see truth the way you could never see it before. And it it gave you understanding, deep understanding, real understanding. It gave you truth. So you scurry on down the field and cross the line. But when you look back, you see all of these people all still blindfolded. All going in different directions. People screaming, do this, come this way, do this. And they're all over the place. It's almost like shrapnel after a bomb went off. They're everywhere. And that's a metaphor for what we're seeing today. Blinded people listening to the voices of the world being drawn by the corrupt nature of their spirit, their heart, their soul. And they are going in every direction. But thank God that blindfold on you and me is gone.